0: long
1: the 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 Welcome to The Politics Guy's a place for bipartisan rational and civil debate on American politics and policy I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University With me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey Kristen doing? I'm doing okay today. How about you?
0: I'm good. It's Saturday. I'm feeling good today. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: you know, before we get started with with, uh, with the show, I had a, just a brief message for folks. If you are a supporter of the show at the $10 a month or higher level on Patreon, you've got either a Politics Guy mug or a tote bag coming your way. That if you want one, that is, you know, I always hate it when people send out that stuff that I don't want. And sometimes I just say, "Can I just not get something?" So you know <laughs> what I mean. But but anyway, I think they're they're both pretty cool. So if you want one, we I'll send that to you. And I was in fact I was getting ready to send them out when I realized that for most folks, I didn't know whether they wanted the mug or the tote bag or. Neither. And there's no way, as far as I can tell, to set things up in Patreon to have people choose an option. So what I did is I recently sent out messages to everyone who's entitled to get that mug or tote bag. And so if you want either of them, just let me know. And if you'd rather not respond through Patreon, you can just email me your preference along with a mailing address if you didn't already provide one in Patreon. And again, my email address is mike at politicsguys.com. So there you go. All right. Uh, that does it for the housekeeping stuff. So I think we are uh, ready to go. Christian, if you want to kick us off.
0: We are. Um, yeah. So, the, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious what the first story will be uh, this week. Um, it's no surprise that we're going to talk about the immigration deal that was brokered between the U.S. and Mexico um, earlier this week. So after months of back and forth, I mean, it feels like it was years, but it was months. (laughs) (laughs) um, President Trump announced last Friday that the U.S. and Mexico had finally reached a deal. And this is, of course, after he would threatened to implement these punitive tariffs that would have begun this past Monday. But Mexico avoided those tariffs by entering into this deal and the details of the deal, which were only just widely reported Friday, um, the provisions included a side agreement um, that called for burden sharing and the assignment of responsibility for processing refugee claims from migrants. Um, and this is part of a regional approach to tackling a rise in Central American migration to the US. Um, and of course, um, as part of this agreement, if the US determines after its discretion, after consultation with Mexico, 45 days that the measures adopted by Mexico haven't sufficiently reached the results in addressing the flow of US migrants to the US southern border, Mexico will take all necessary steps under domestic law to bring the agreement into force. So, it's uh it, it's a bit hairy there and of course there you know the clock is ticking and all eyes are on Mexico. So, what do you think, Mike? <laughs>
1: Well, I I think it's uh, it's an interesting uh, example of, I guess, uh, outsourcing our border security to Mexico. (laughs) So, well, I mean, that's obviously the kind of glib way to look at it. But I think we're expecting an awful lot from Mexico here. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, the biggest part of this, it seems to me, at least the part that a lot of folks are focusing on, is that taking Mexico taking uh, six thousand National Guard forces. At which, by the way, Mexico's National Guard, brand new thing. It was only approved by Mexico's Congress in March of 2019. So Mm -hmm. this isn't like an existing body. And they're supposed to go essentially to the the border with Guatemala, which, you know, is a pretty long border, over Mm -hmm. 540 miles, lots of rough kind of jungle, you know, areas. Mexico's never made any concerted attempt to secure this border. And to put this in perspective we spent we've spent years decades and billions of dollars securing our border with Mexico, and we have huge problems and I think expecting Mexico to do big things with a brand new force on a border they haven't really worked on securing in forty five days is completely unrealistic i mean, that's not to say that you know some progress can't be made, but if we're expecting this surge of Of migrants to slow to a trickle in 45 days. I think that's incredibly overly optimistic, especially because you think about it, let's say that Mexico even magically manages to halt most of the flow from the Central American countries at that Guatemalan border. Well, there's still that lag time because people have to go all the way across Mexico to get to the United States. And these people are traveling largely on foot. So, I'm wondering if that 45 days thing is maybe more of a kind of a, uh, a public relations sort of thing, at least I hope it is, because expecting that and saying, well, the the, the flow hasn't slowed appreciably, so we're going to, you know, lay down these tariffs. I, I I don't think that that's a very smart or realistic goal.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I agree with you on that front. Um, 45 days seems a little short. I mean, I think that, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth about the the tariffs being too punitive, um, you know, this undue pressure being put on Mexico. I think in this case, it worked to the to the ends, at least that President Trump wanted them to work. Um, but I think 40 days is is pretty unrealistic. If you have any knowledge about, you know, the, the 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 crisis at the border, you know, immigration, how how might how the process works. I mean, like you mentioned, this is a fairly new concept. I mean, even Mexico has said weeks back, um, and I think they even were talking about months ago, that they just didn't have the resources to be able to do this, to be able to help um, on their front. So, you know, I think that they've had concerns about it. I think this was sort of a panicked attempt To, you know, avoid these tariffs. And I understand why I actually understand why the tariffs were threatened. Um, And I and I and I think, actually, that this has uh, this is sort of in line with the way Trump does things. I mean, this is a guy he's a he's a businessman and he's used to conveying, you know, his ideas and and exerting power through force. And this is another way to do that and I can understand why, you know, Republicans, of which I am one, why he did it. Um and but I also think that the 45-day thing is unrealistic. I mean, well, this is again this is a wait and see, but um I do hope that they, you know, that they allow for a little bit of Of extra time there, because there will be a lag. Um, And of course, you know, I I don't know, in light of the fact that I I think it was $4.5 billion that President Trump asked for back in May uh, for the border. I mean, this should, I think, satisfy some of the concerns on the right about, you know, just exerting, you know, maybe Mexico taking up part of the burden um, will help allay some of those fears of spending money. Um, I know that that was my primary concern, but will it work? I I don't know.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, in terms of just the strategy, obviously, you know, a lot of Republicans even were very upset with even the threat of that, because, of course, Mexico is the U.S.'s largest trading partner. And Mm -hmm. this would have this would have implications in the tens of billions of dollars if, you know, this kind of goes through. And And I think they're right about that because the problem here, and this is, I think, true for a lot of the things that President Trump does, is they make sense in the short term. If you try to strong arm people, Mm -hmm. uh, sovereign countries, that that makes sense, maybe short term, if you're playing kind of a single, you know, a, a single iteration game. But in the long term. When international relations are built on trust and this belief that there are certain things that you will and won't do, this has some pretty, you know, some pretty long-term implications. I don't get the sense that President Trump really thinks about these long-term implications, but, but I think it's, it's troublesome. Um, also, I think just the very, you know, the, the authority for President Trump to do this is through, of course, his national emergency Declaration now specifically mm-hmm. he invoked uh, he invoked the invoked he invoked the <laughs> yeah international emergency economic powers act and uh, there are a lot of different powers that the president has once he declares a national emergency and so to me I feel like we need to I think Congress needs to step back and this could be done in a sense in a bipartisan way maybe I'm dreaming but <laughs> to you know it it's impossible I think. To define what an emergency is, that's that's going to be fairly subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what we could do is change the uh, n- the National Emergencies uh, Act to maybe not define an emergency, but to perhaps sunset presidential declarations after say a month or two months because. I think if we think about what the rationale behind this is, I agree with the rationale saying if there is an emergency and there's not time for Congress to deliberate an act, it makes sense to give the president that power. And I'm absolutely for that. But it's not intended as a way for, co- for the president to go around Congress to act unilaterally. Right. And that, to me, that's what that's what President Trump is doing. I don't think that was the legislative intent, and I also don't think it's very good for just more generally uh, separation of powers in Congress as a coequal, equal uh, in fact, the first branch. So I would love to see legislation that moved in that direction, though I don't expect that that would—I you know, I don't see that I'm getting through the Senate, certainly
0: no and i and I think um and i and I've mentioned this before on the show that whoever happens to be the president i you know I think that the party sort of lines up behind whatever emergency declarations they're making, and obviously in this case i I do understand um i i I follow what you're saying a hundred percent, and I agree with you a hundred percent actually um about um you know the fact that the president should have this power, especially if we're dealing with a situation that's deemed a crisis, for example. And of course, you know you have, um, you know DHS and you've got these border security officials saying that the flow has recently reached this crisis level, which in the past they had not said that. They kept saying it's nearing, it's a threat, and now they're saying it's reaching crisis. Now, again, that's subjective in in their eyes. They're dealing with it on on the ground level, and I will go ahead and say that I've never been to the border. I've, I'm have i not dealing with this on a daily basis. I don't know. Most of us don't know. Um, but this is what they're saying. And so the president has a responsibility to act on their behalf. And I understand that. But I think that the idea of sunsetting, um, you know, a, an executive order like this would be would be wise, um, because I think it would give everything a chance to play out. And if Congress, you know, We have a difficult situation. We have a bit of gridlock with Congress and the president right now. But if if they're hopefully and I I hope and and, you know, upon I I don't know what that if Congress sees that this is doing some good and that, um, you know, Mexico is holding up their end of the bargain, we've stemmed the flow. um, There aren't further complications. I hope that they would act in the best interest of the country again in a bipartisan way and and back the president on this if he was right. I don't don't know if he will be. But, well, um,
1: you know, I, I think one reason why I'm, uh, there are a number of reasons why I'm, I'm not super hopeful uh, oh, and one yeah. of these that I haven't mentioned yet is that in a way, Congress likes letting the president do these things because then mm-hmm. it can wash its hand of the responsibility. Now, Congress, it, because if there was some kind of a sunset thing, then all of a sudden there would be a crisis that Congress would have to act to solve but now they can just say well the president is doing these things and while I don't approve of it you know our, our our hands are tied and he's doing this and that sort of thing so congress doesn't want i think in many cases the responsibility of of making these tough choices and in making these tough choices it means that you have to compromise and that's one thing we're not seeing any attempt at as far as i can tell is all the involved parties getting together to try to craft some sort of legislative fix
0: no, you're not. And and uh, you know another thing is you have, you know, so many democratic presidential candidates who've, you know, declared their candidacy. They're sitting in Congress right now. And, you know, they would use this as an opportunity to grandstand would be my fear, is that they would use this as an opportunity to not necessarily fix something that's, according to DHS and border security officials, a crisis at the border, something that really could be a real issue that we have to fix now. And instead of, you know, they would use that for personal gain or political gain. And from a policy perspective, that just, it irritates me beyond Yeah, No, I
1: I get it. I mean, I don't think anyone, well, I won't say that, but it seems to me (laughs) patently obvious that we have a big problem with our asylum system. When when you have a system where, what, 80-something percent of the people who apply not only have to wait years in many cases to get a, a decision, but those decisions are, no, you don't qualify for asylum under our law. I mean, the base issue, it seems to me, is that we need, to, we need to change how that system works, what qualifies as asylum, and how to expedite that process so it's a matter of weeks, not years to make that decision. And until we deal with that, I don't see these other problems going away.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's interesting that our laws in this country sort of allow for people to come across the border or to come into this country and at least try to claim asylum no matter what, which is not the case in a lot of other countries. Right. And so I think, you know, maybe from an outsider's perspective, I mean, I'm not an outsider, but from an outsider's perspective, as somebody who knows a lot of uh, people who immigrated here, I live in a community full of immigrants um, who who were seeking asylum. And, um, you know, a lot of these people view it as sort of a as a, as an opportunity and, and not really, you know, a process. And I think um, maybe we need to cut back some of the red tape on that process. Like, like you said, I'm just not sure that we have the answer yet. I'm not sure I've heard it. no um, It I, seems like we can't make up our minds.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I agree. And you know, some, some people uh, in the, in the, last few weeks have been talking about so-called safe third country agreements, basically that uh, asylum seekers would have to apply for asylum in the first country they arrive in. Now, the U.S. actually has one of these with Canada. It doesn't Mm -hmm. really come into play a whole heck of a lot for understandable reasons. (laughs) I think it would be a lot tougher in the Mexican situation. I mean, you know, Mexico actually, especially in some of these areas, it is not so safe for for Mexicans, uh, their murder rate is at an all-time high. It went up something like thirty-three mm-hmm. percent from twenty seventeen. It, it's pretty awful, but it's only awful when you compare it to say El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, which are way, way worse. But so basically, mm-hmm. these these people who are applying for asylum. I mean, having them stay in Mexico is maybe marginally better. Now that also imposes a lot of costs on. Mexico. And the State Department actually is willing to step in a little bit. They're uh, they're saying they're, hey, they have tens of millions of dollars to support asylum seekers staying in Mexico. That's different from the safe third-party thing. That's part of that MPP program, which uh, recently it's been at around 250 people a day who are just applying for asylum in the U.S., but they wait mm. in Mexico. And I think under this agreement, it's going to go up to around a thousand people per day. And that's obviously, again, that might be a decent stopgap, but it doesn't address the fundamental problem. And what, what bugs me, and I, you know, I know it bugs you too, is that we have these ultra short policy windows to deal yeah. with these things. And we, we both know that nothing's going to happen before the elections now. And so we have this window, maybe depending on what happens in November of, of 2020, uh, we have this window maybe of of six months from January of 2021 up until the summer for something to get done. And And isn't it sad that we've come to a place where that's basically our policy window for doing stuff is, you know, six to eight months out of, uh, out of a four year cycle. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's, that's depressing.
0: It is. I, and I think bringing up the humanitarian aspect of it is important, even though, and I will go on the record criticizing some of my fellow conservatives and Republicans and say that sometimes we neglect that humanitarian aspect of it. And it, maybe I'm a bit more sensitive to it because of where I live. And, you know, because some of my very best friends are people who, you know, a lot of uh, Venezuelans, Cubans I live in South Florida. I mean, I'm surrounded by it. These people are dealing with more than most of us could imagine, more than I could imagine um, in their home countries and what they're escaping. And while I think that that can't be the sole focus, and I will go on the record again and criticize Democrats for making that the sole focus, you know, pulling at the heartstrings sort of a thing. I don't think that that's it. You know, we have our own interests in this country. We have financial interests and we have to worry about, um, you know, creating these other crises, um, you know, for our, for future generations to clean up. But, you know, there, we have to have an eye on that humanitarian aspect of it. I mean, where do we put these people? Um, Back in May, there was, you know, that, that, you know, I think it was a four. What did I say? Four point three billion dollar dump of uh, mm-hmm. you know money into this this emergency fund that President Trump asked for. And the overwhelming bulk of that money, I think it was three point three billion, was allotted to humanitarian just for humanitarian causes yeah, right. where that went. You know, I don't know. There have been there's a lot of conjecture, but um, you know that's a lot of money um, that we're just sort of pouring into the border for helping, and and are we really fixing the problem? No, um, and maybe that money, and, and we've mentioned this before when we've talked on on this podcast, but you know maybe that money would be better spent. Um, or I, I would say less of that money would be better. So maybe we'd all be better off if we're, you know, putting money into housing these people elsewhere and we're trying to fix humanitarian problems elsewhere. It's a lot less expensive. The burden is a lot less on the United States. It's, it could be if we could figure out the secret formula, you know, it could really oh, yeah. be a win win. But, yeah. uh, you know, but, again, and, I haven't heard that.
1: <laughs> no. And, and I mean, walls are stopgap solutions at best. You know, they don't address that. And and so I I think any sort of a solution is going to have to involve both sides making significant concessions. And that's just not something we're seeing at this point.
0: Nope. And it's not going to happen in the next year. You know, (laughs) it's just not. Not at all. All right. So... I guess, should we move on to the next story? Yeah, let's do that. (laughs) We have a lot to cover. Um, So the next story is everything that's been going on um, in the Gulf of Oman and and with Iran. And, of course, tensions escalating there. so this is one that just sort of started gaining traction as the week came to a close. So if you were watching the news last night or maybe um, Thursday, you, you heard about this. On Thursday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, stated that the U.S. government assessed that Iran was responsible for attacks on two tankers that took place in the Gulf of Oman earlier that day. And he claimed that the assessment was based on the following. Uh, intelligence, weapons used, and the level of expertise needed to execute the attack. Um, and I should also note that recently, Iran was pinpointed in attacks on ship, other shipping vessels in the area and said that the situation is one of escalating tension in the area. So it's a bit of a cloud of mystery. Yeah. So what's your take, Mike?
1: Well, I, I don't have any trouble believing that Iran is... Behind this, I mean, I saw like so many people. That sort of mm-hmm. grainy video. When I, I don't know. I mean, you know, yeah, very grainy. But, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it's like guys in a ship taking something off of a guys in a boat taking something off of a ship. I don't know. So, sure. I, given Iran's past behavior, I don't have any problems believing that. But to me, the bigger issue is, you know, this this points to the fact that, in a way. President Trump's strategy is, and I'll air quote it, working here. <sighs> I mean, uh, since we pulled out of the Iran nuclear agreement, which we pulled out of not because Iran was in violation of it, but because essentially the Trump administration felt that they could be- get a better deal mm-hmm. than the Obama administration negotiated. And the I think the calculation was that we could we could cause enough economic pain to force Iran to come back to negotiating table and give us more than they gave the Obama administration. Would you say that's more or less
0: Oh definitely. Accurate? Definitely and that and this is a pattern. I mean we just talked about this regarding yep. Mexico and the putative yeah, tariffs. Exactly. I mean this right. is his MO, you know? So here's my question
1: on this is, you know, this is a this is a gamble, obviously, that we can kind of force Iran into submission. So, of course, this makes sense. What we believe Iran is doing because they're lashing out because they don't want to submit. Obviously, they want to make a point about the importance of the oil supply and what they can do in retaliation and so forth. But here's my my concerns. I'm wondering if you know it's one thing to play hardball; it's another thing to back people into a corner mm-hmm. and. We need, I, one of the things I think we sometimes don't give enough consideration to, this just isn't true with Iran, but it's true with dealings with a lot of other countries, is what's their domestic politics situation look like? I mm-hmm. mean, in Iran, what are the hardliners, what can the hardliners allow? I mean, what, what are they able to give up? And I think you could reasonably argue that the, Iran, that the Iran deal that the Trump administration pulled out of was a huge concession for these hardliners that might have been as much as their politics could bear and so pushing them even further might have the unintended consequence of actually just making things worse and i don't know if that's the situation it sure feels that way to me but i don't think that we're sensitive enough to the to the nuances of their domestic politics because their system isn't like ours mm-hmm. and these hardliners have a ton of power and it was kind of a major it was kind of a major lift to even get them to agree to inspections and pulling back on their program and so forth. And so now, not only do we have problems with Iran here, but of course, the larger issue is, well, if we have an administration that says we're going to make deals, but if we see we have an opportunity to get a better deal by exerting some leverage, we don't have a problem pulling out of anything and making a better deal. And Again, like you mentioned, and like I mentioned before, that might make a lot of sense in the very short term, but longer term, that's a huge problem i think
0: i I, I agree with that um, i one thing that I have had many conversations just regarding geo the geopolitical realm and you know our involvement with the Middle east um, while I have always been very supportive of of some of it, I think that one of the shortcomings of the United States, you know, this this idea of foreign policy in the Middle East, and again, this has been expressed so many times and it's been ignored so many times, is that we, like you said, we have no idea, we have no concept of how their systems work, and it goes so far, it goes into the culture, it seeps into the society, the way that their worldview, it is completely different. I mean, they're they're they are um, they are on a, on another planet when it comes to political structure. And it's something that I know um I listened to um the serial podcast. I don't know if you listen to the serial podcast. It's um it's kind of the granddaddy. But uh-huh. um yeah. yeah, but but season two, which was the Bo Bergdahl season, um I was struck all the time by these military officials coming on and and repeating this over and over again. We have no idea what their system is about. That's not saying that we should pull out and never, you know, know, forego all of our interests. But when it comes to something like this, um, I think it's important to look at history um, and see how we've done things and what has worked. And while clearly what we have done in the past regarding Iran has never completely worked, um, you know, in the 1980s, and I, I think it was like the late 80s, 86, 87, um, you know, the, we have sort of a repeat um, in a lot of ways of what was happening now, with a few exceptions, um, where Iran was attacking these tankers um, of neutral countries that were suspected of carrying, I think, oil from Iraq. And this was, you know, when there were tensions between Iraq and, and Iran, which, you know, it's, it's ongoing. And um, I think it's interesting that President Reagan at the time was also criticized for for handling things in an odd way. But what he did that President Trump is not doing and this is you know, this is something that it's not really a criticism of President Trump. It's just a hope for what I personally hope he does, is Reagan did a great job of unifying the world and a lot of our ally countries into sort of this unified response against the aggression of Iran. And and he was able to protect these tankers. He, he was able to utilize the Navy. And so we sort of avoided a, a, a bigger conflict. And I thought that that was smart. I mean, did it work entirely? No, but it was pretty close. And so I I would hope... You know, that that President Trump, again, I've said this before and I've been happy about what he's done. I've been disappointed, but I would hope that moving forward because he's he's really given no details. Um, but I would hope that he would try to get other countries on board and that he would utilize power in this way. And oh, yeah. almost like a protective thing. And that and I do believe that he should protect American interests and he should protect the interests of our allies. I am totally on board with that. Yeah. But I mean, there are just so many things to consider
1: yeah no i i i completely agree and one of the one of the things i admired about uh President George H.W. Bush is that he was a big believer in protecting American interests but in doing it in a way where you got that sort of international coalition and it was a real right. coalition not just you know we grab a couple countries here and there who we can that sort of thing but but yeah absolutely um you know the other aspect of this I think is of course the the president's uh, all in with Saudi Arabia strategy in, in the Middle East and of course Saudi <laughs> Arabia and Iran are the two main contending powers there. And, you know, this relates not this relates also to the fact of our ongoing the administration's ongoing support of Saudi Arabia's side in the civil war in Mm -hmm. Yemen. And, of course, there are a number of members of Congress, including conservative members of Congress, who voted against, in fact, the majority voted against our continuing support for the war. And there's been a there was a recent big arms sale to Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that it looks like that uh, the Congress, both chambers are going to express a a resolution of disapproval. They're going to essentially, you know, uh, nullify that. Then the president's going to veto it and there are not going to be the votes for an override that sort of thing. And so I think the president would it would be in his best interest and in the country's best interest if he listened to the what what's a you know somewhat of a bipartisan consensus out of Congress. And again, you know certainly we need to st- stick up for American interests, strategic interests, but mm-hmm. we need to do so in a way that doesn't damage us in, in the longer term and I think uh, and I think that this sort of very force first and that's the only tool in the toolbox and we're just gonna these are our friends and these are our enemies it's just not how it works i don't think
0: no i i I, um I joke around with some of my kind of libertarian, other libertarian leaning Republican friends that Rand Paul is sort of the Trump whisperer <laughs> in a lot of ways. You know, I know they play golf. And and uh, when it comes to a lot of these geopolitical issues, um, you know, these things that are that go beyond our understanding, I, I think, you know, um, I'm willing to to give President Trump the benefit of the doubt on certain things. I think the muscle works. From time to time. And I think it works in the short term. And I think it I, I actually think that, you know, what was going on in Mexico was was a win for now. Um, I think it could be a win later on, but I think it was a win for now. And in this situation um, regarding um, the arms sales to Saudi Arabia, I think that Trump would be wise to listen to people like the trump Whisper, Rand paul and and maybe back away from it a little bit um because i think there are some legitimate fears that those weapons are going into the hands of malicious i mean it's i don't even think it's a it's a fear it's 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 an actuality i mean that this is what's happening with these weapons and we've run into this problem again and again and well you know i i I welcome this change from this Obama administration era of sort of this, um, you know, this, this like cautious optimism and this hands, this more hands off approach. Um, you know, I think it's working. I think he would be wise to use a little bit of restraint, but he's not yeah. the most restrained guy. No, no. <laughs> you know. So, I, yeah, you know. <laughs> I mean,
1: I, I actually agree. I think. Force can be a useful tool, but if it's the only tool in your toolbox, it's not, you're not going to be nearly as effective as as if you use it judiciously.
0: Right, right. I totally agree.
1: So now we actually have some domestic politics to talk about here. Yeah, a
0: little bit, a little bit this week. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so a couple of interesting things going on, but the first is. in Washington, uh, a House panel voted to hold Attorney General William Barr and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross in contempt of Congress for withholding documents on plans to add a this is the citizenship question to the 2020 census that's been kind of a, a an on and off hot topic, um, haven't heard as much about it in a while. So this is the first I've, you know, kind of a resurgence of this. Um, so this was this happened on Wednesday. President Donald Trump exerted executive privilege over the material and then the Oversight and Reform Committee voted on Wednesday for the Civil Contempt Resolution, which gives Democratic Uh, committee chairman, Elijah Cummings, the option to file a lawsuit to enforce the panel subpoenas for the documents. And that vote was 24 to 15. So it was pretty decided um, to hold them in contempt. But um, overall, pretty interesting because um, the chairman of that committee, Elijah Cummings, is a Fairly controversial figure, and he is far from you know he's he's pretty partisan, and you know there there are of course um, allegations that he's using this as a you know as as all politicians do. I hate this idea that you know that that they somehow will <laughs> rise above and not be partisan and use this for twenty twenty gain. But yeah, that's you know there's a lot of criticism that that's what he's doing, and of course all this is going to be decided later on at the end of the month in front of the Supreme Court. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, uh, well, well it might. I mean, cuz mm-hmm. there was also this week the ACLU uh asked oh, yeah. the Supreme Court to hold off on ruling on this, given the new information about that the Republican operative who supposedly was uh, instrumental in crafting the whole citizenship question thing. And so the ACLU's argument is basically this is significant new evidence that the court didn't hear. It didn't get in its briefs and didn't hear in the oral arguments. And so therefore they should they should essentially kick it back down to a lower court to rule, or they can rule against it. They so tell you'd be fine with right, that, certainly. Right. But uh, so I think there are a couple things going on here. Uh, first, there's obviously just the question about the census, and the reason I'm sure you'll agree why this is such a big deal is once the census is done, it's done, and that's that's it for a decade. You can't mm-hmm. correct and there's no redo on the census you can't correct the miscount or an undercount and of course it affects billions of do- tens of billions of dollars in federal funding and apportionment for the next entire decade so that's one big part of it and it's not going to surprise you I'm sure that I I it seems to me that based on the evidence I've seen that there absolutely was a partisan uh, a partisan goal in doing this and to me the biggest issue with this, well, kind of the big structural issue with this is we only do a census once every 10 years. Now, why do we do that? Well, because it says so in the Constitution. And (laughs) That's not necessarily the best reason to do something for over 200 years. And and so I did did a little digging. Now, the 2020 census is supposed to cost around $15.6 billion, which, okay, to you and me might sound like a lot. But but, but I mean, that's like 0.3% of the budget, Mm -hmm. basically for $15.6 billion. It's only one aircraft carrier and a couple of subs. So, you know, uh, not exactly couch cushion change, but what would happen? What would happen if we moved to every five years for the census? I mean, not a big increase in cost, but all of a sudden the political stakes are a whole lot lower because we can make these corrections and it, now it's not, you know, half of a generation where congressional districts are locked in. I, I don't know that that's, that's not a, that seems to me to be a maybe a reasonable way, a reasonable thing at least to consider, because as long as the stakes are going to be this high, it's going to be politicized. And if we can't depoliticize these things, and I don't think we can, maybe the thing to do is try to make the stakes a little bit lower so we don't have so much of this rushing into it.
0: This is a, a really random question, um, but it, has anyone ever even brought that up, Mike? Did you come across that? Because I have you never know, heard of that. It's really know. interesting. I, it
1: just, just kind of came to me because I was trying to, you know, I try as much as I can to say, how can I get past sort of the the, the, the partisan surface thing and look at what's the, what's driving it? And, you know, it just kind of came to me late in the week. And so I, I'm sure wow. there have been some proposals, but, but it seems to me that that might be a way to lower the stakes at least a little bit. That doesn't answer the question before us now. And of course, I'll be very interested in hearing what the court says. In my senses, they're going to rule and they're going to rule, uh, in my view, incorrectly. Uh, but uh, <laughs> we'll, of course, we'll talk about that when it happens. But, you know, the other thing, obviously, big fundamental issue is this uh, branch conflict, right, between the Congress's legitimate authority to issue subpoenas and get information to do legitimate legislative things. And then, of course, the Trump administration responded by claiming executive Mm -hmm. privilege. And that's a legitimate thing as well. And this is difficult because, you know, people just want to take sides and say, well, the administration's right or the House Democrats are right. But if you take a look at it and how the courts basically ruled on this in the past, they said, you know, these are both legitimate conflicting interests. And so we want to stay out of it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And in general, the court's expectation is that both sides will make a good faith effort to compromise. And we've actually seen a little bit of that because Barr gave up more of the information on the Mueller investigation Mm -hmm. due to this sort of a compromise. And now, That's what the courts are going to want. And they're going to be reluctant to step in uh, unless they see that sort of thing. And I think rightly, rightly so, because when we look at the decisions courts have reached on this, they've been, they haven't been sweeping. They've been very kind of case specific because this is so subjective. And, you know, it, it really depends a lot on the specifics of the case here. And so my hope is that we'll see the same sort of compromise in this as we've seen between Barr and House Democrats. Now, that's going to mean that both sides are going to be a little unhappy with the results. But that's, I think, how this has to work out, unless... You just want the courts to impose a decision on you. And I don't think that's good in the long run for anyone.
0: No, I, I think you touched on something so important that I had actually put on my paper and highlighted. And that's, you know, this point that I keep driving home um, on just about every issue that we talk about on this podcast and that I talk about in my life. And that's um, the fact that I think a lot of people um, in the United States don't realize that just because something suits their own interests their own political motivations and it sort of aligns with their ideas or because the news is telling you that it does um, that doesn't mean that it's not still politically motivated and I think it's important to remember it's you always have to look through that lens of 2020 2022 2024 I mean this is I mean this is the way that they, that politicians think and I say this as somebody who's worked with them time and time again on every level for many years this is they're not thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow or next week, they're thinking about what's going to, you know, are they going to get reelected? It's very personal for them, and it affects their policy. And I think, um, you know, when you're dealing with something like this, I understand, and, and you you beautifully summarize sort of the 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 issues that the Supreme Court will face eventually, whenever they get to it. You know, if they listen to the ACLU, um, but you know, they they're facing this this issue of what what you know does executive privilege trump um you know this these you know powers of congress and vice versa but um you know something that's so important to remember is that both sides have political stakes here and a lot of times there's this sort of monday morning quarter Back and going on to you know where one side will come forward and say like oh this is you know what we want to happen and then they'll come up with a rationale later you know yeah oh yeah <laughs> like definitely. like say it and then explain it later on and I think that both sides have done a really good job of doing this and to presenting their argument but after the fact so you know on the right um, you have you know uh, people like Bill Barr and Wilbur Ross saying that this is all um, an effort to this is essential for enforcing the the voter rights act mm-hmm. and i think that this is uh, you know i i understand the rationale entirely um you know it, but it does feel a little bit like monday morning quarterbacking of course you know we all know what this is all politically motivated they see this as a potential win and so, but this is the, the the what they're inserting into it and of course this gives democrats the opportunity to do the exact same thing and i think um, you know, we we overlook that. Um, a lot of Republicans and and a lot of Democrats on both sides tend to just automatically side with you know whoever's up there on their side and you know shouting about the other side. And uh, we have to take a step back and and look at it. And again, you know, this is one of those things that's going to play out. But you know, be interesting to see how the Supreme Court rules. And I also think that they will probably rule um in favor of. Um, the citizenship question. Um, but again, I you know, I have to say you, we really need to research that idea of the census every five years. That I have never, no, that, I don't think I've ever come across it. That's really interesting.
1: I'd, I'd like to think every once in a while, maybe I can have, whenever I have what I think is an original idea, I just assume <laughs> I haven't researched enough because somebody else came up with it. No, I don't it's know, Maybe logical. it's original-ish, I don't know. But, you know, before we moved on to, we move on, there is one other thing I wanted to to bring up in, in, Thinking about this and reading about uh, this, you know, President Trump's attorneys say that the House Democrats have issued over 100 subpoenas and related requests for information. And so I I thought to myself, well, okay. number one, is that accurate? I I don't know. Number two, is it a lot? And because I was thinking, well, I, I recall the Republican controlled house issuing a lot of subpoenas to the Obama administration. And so I went on a search. And I could not find anyone anywhere who has any sort of a overtime uh, log of this, because I, I think that, you know, that's pretty important. Is this unusual activity by House Democrats? And now you might say, well, even if it is, it's because the Trump administration is unusually corrupt or potentially corrupt. And I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that, uh, to that viewpoint, but it's, it was frustrating to me this week because I wanted better data to go on to, you know, to try to make some sort of decent comparisons. And it just wasn't there. And I think the reason why it just wasn't there is that's not the kind of thing that's very interesting or headline grabbing. You know, here's a here's a 20 year retrospective analysis of the number of subpoenas that House committees issue to the executive branch. <sighs> you know, I know I mean, it's a little
0: it's, wonky for most people, maybe but it, even but it, but <laughs> it, it would be super- interesting,
1: though. Yeah. I mean, it's super important to me in making these arguments about whether somebody is overstepping and being too partisan or whatever that means, but that's the kind of information that can be, I think, very important, but so hard to, so hard to get it. I almost thought about, I almost thought to myself, well, maybe this would be a good academic paper for me to write before I remembered that I just absolutely hate writing academic papers, (laughs) but that's a whole nother, whole nother story. You get an audience of like 20 people, you know, but anyway. Uh,
0: If I go for my PhD, maybe I'll go ahead and write that.
1: (laughs) you go. So, uh, so so anyway, I just wanted to, I just wanted to to bring that that point up there before, before he moved on.
0: Yeah. I, you know, and I, I also have to bring up a quick point. It's, it's funny because um, more and more, and this began um, in the Obama administration, I would hear about this back and forth going on stuff like this executive privilege and this, you know, outcry from the right about executive privilege and back and forth. And I'm seeing it going on even more now with president Trump. Um, I think it's less because of corruption and more just because of over you know, this overly politicized environment we're living in, there's so much hatred. And and I think there's just this, you know, this sort of viciousness going on on, on both sides to just outdo the other, no matter how small. And, you know, it's funny because when I when I read, um, you know, Democratic Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings, I thought, well, of course he did that. You know, and, right. and then, of course, this is how, you know, Trump is responding. I mean, these it's almost it's almost comical in a lot of ways. We're dealing with these people who have kind of become caricatures of themselves. And we can I can almost anticipate I don't know about you. It's kind of a side note, but I can almost anticipate what they're going to say and do at this point. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. It's just absolutely. it's rather disheartening, um, which is know, why I, I
1: think it was it was so surprising when uh, Justin Amash came out and, you know, oh, uh, sure, he, fact, yeah. he was one of the people who voted for the contempt citation and and uh I mean it's we rarely see that anymore that kind of breaking of ranks on something like that and of course he's been obviously on the right here you know there's a lot of kind of drum, drumming him out and I think he just recently announced that he's going to be quitting the House Freedom Caucus they yep, probably did. just blocked him out of the meetings and all that oh, kind yeah. of thing Oh yeah he
0: was he was part of that little triumphant trio that I, I and it's and it's a little you know it's it's disheartening for me because I really loved Justin Amash I, re, I really thought that he was somebody who I appreciated even though I didn't always agree with him I appreciated that he towed the line for freedom and you know he was part of that Massy, Paul Amash I mean they were kind of this little three musketeers for a long time so you know I'm sure that they convinced him to, to yeah. remove himself. So yeah. and, and know,
1: it, it is too bad because, I, I mean, I, I talk about Rand Paul. He's by far my, my more favorite of the two Kentucky senators. I won't go on my, one of my normal <laughs> Mitch McConnell rants. But he's my, but, you he's know, my
0: favorite, too. So well, we agree I mean, on the,
1: the thing with Rand Paul is, well, I disagree with him on a lot. I get the sense that he takes a non-trivial percentage of his positions based on some actual principle as opposed to what's my team want. And mm-hmm. I, I can at least respect that, even if I don't agree with it, you know, so. Mm-hmm.
0: Definitely. So uh, shall we move on? Yeah, let's to, do that. OK, so we so we have a, a couple of news stories that are coming uh, straight out of the White House, actually, uh, this week, more domestic things going on. Uh, White House. The first thing uh, is with. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Um, So as most of you probably know, she's decided to step down from her duties. And this was announced by President Trump this past Thursday on his favorite platform for making those types of announcements, which is Twitter. Um, Sanders is I should note Sanders is only the third woman to have held the post, uh, which as a woman I find a little disheartening again but um and she served for nearly two years as uh and then before that she was the deputy press secretary so she was elevated to that position and her rationale um sanders says that she's leaving to head home with her family and the president has wished her well um and i also i did a little bit of research here because i've i find myself i talk to my husband a lot about you know jobs you know in in the white house and um he brought up the question the other day well how long do white house pre- secretaries typically serve because i feel like there's such a high turnover and i thought you know there really is and i looked it up and i saw there were multiple um numbers that i saw but everything seemed to fall between two and three years of serving so serving for nearly two years is fairly typical i would say there have been uh, you know but I, but, I,
1: but i would say for Serving as White House press secretary in this environment for president trump, I mean oh. my guy I, I met Sean Spicer the, the job just destroyed him in in months and mm-hmm. I, I don't think anyone thought that uh, Sanders would last no. twenty three months i that uh, she needs she probably needs a long a long break on a beach with some you know uh, umbrella <laughs> drinks and, and God knows what else because wow that is not a job I would wish on anyone uh you know that's a that's a rough job so no. I, that's yeah. one. That was, that was my first thing that I thought of. It. But my second thing is one of the things under Sanders that the press office has been doing is they've basically not so much ended standard kind of media briefings, but they've cut them down to the point where they almost never happened. Uh, they said, I think they have the top two records for the most months without a news briefing mm-hmm. because those things just got so crazy and contentious. And, you know, the, the president would would say things on Twitter that were demonstrably untrue. And even, a, even a, I think, a uh, uh, sympathetic spin would be, well, they're uh, hyperbole. Mm-hmm. And the press secretary has to not walk them back because that's not what this administration does, but certainly explain them or contextualize them, if you will. A- and that got awfully rough in an open forum type of setting,
0: mm-hmm. I think. Right. And you, you have just so much, there's, there was all this animosity, um, you know, when Sean Spicer was the press secretary and actually just an interesting side note, I've met him and he's lovely. So it's, it's fine. He's actually a very kind of gentle, soft spoken man, very kind. And, um, you know, it's funny because I walked away from meeting him thinking like, how did you do that? Uh, You know, (laughs) he's just too nice. And, you know, Sarah Sanders, I I've never met her, um, in full disclosure, but I would think you would have to be tough as nails to be able to oh defend gosh, yeah. some of the things, and 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 um and just again, I can't stress enough, like just the how um vile some of the back and forth became and I and I blame everybody for that you know I I don't think it was a lot of people pointed the finger that I mean they personally attacked Sarah Sanders Um, you know on, on many different occasions and so you know I guess the bottom line is that as a mom I totally understand you just want to go home and chill with your kids and be a mom and you know she's she's been in the public eye since like oh three oh four you know helping her father and you know helping other candidates so you know this is i guess this is a long time coming i i think s- 6 months ago i was starting to say to people like man i can't believe she's still there i mean i i i i like her i admire her you know her uh, feistiness um but man i mean you can only keep that up for so long so yeah I'm a little sad to see her go but um you know there's a lot of speculation about who will fill her place. Um, I know Stephanie Grisham has been discussed as somebody who may fill her spot. So big shoes to fill.
1: (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's a it's a big job for sure.
0: Oh, for sure. And um, then then, so something that's a little more contentious, I guess, um, is that the Office of the Special Counsel, which I should note is not in any way related to Robert Mueller, because I know there were some bloggers that got in (laughs) trouble for saying it had something to do with Robert Mueller. It didn't. Um, They sent a report Uh, this week, I think it was Thursday, to President Trump um, explaining that um, his top aide or one of his top aides, Kellyanne Conway, repeatedly violated the Hatch Act, which we've been talking about for a while in relation to Kellyanne Conway. And this is primarily due to her criticism of Democratic presidential candidates while serving in her official capacity as a White House official. And so there's, you know, there's been all this debate recently about, you know, whether the Hatch Act should apply and whether it, you know, actually does infringe upon these employees first amendment rights and i don't know (laughs) well
1: you know i the first thing i did when I heard about this is I I pulled up the actual text of the Hatch Act. I I thought it would be a good idea to read (laughs) (laughs) that. You know, so, because a lot of times, you know, they they just, uh, you get these summaries and I want to go right to the source. And uh, what jumped out at me is the part that said the federal employee may not use their official authority or influence for the purpose of interfering with or affecting the result of an election. Now it seems to me just patently obvious that of course, Kellyanne Conway has done this on numerous occasions. Now, that doesn't mean, and I think this is important, uh, you know, this is, you can't do that in your official capacity. Right. And, you know, I think Conway is trying to make this, well, they're trying to silence me and the president saying the same thing. That's simply not the case. It's just you can't do that when you are acting in your official capacity capacities. That means your official Twitter account or when you're going on the air as an official representative of the administration on her own, the real Kellyanne Conway or whatever her Twitter account is. I guess she could do that and it would be fine, you know, but uh, not officially and pretty clearly nothing's going to happen. I mean, Conway herself, uh, I love her response to this. Well, love it makes me uh, angry. And I love it in a way, just the, the hutzpah <laughs> of it, you know, she said, blah, blah, blah. If you're going si- to try trying to silence me through the Hatch Act, it's not going to work. Let me know when the jail sentence starts. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's a, that's the most Kellyanne
0: response I've ever heard. <laughs> you know,
1: I mean, that's why Donald Trump loves her, you know? Yes. um, But to me, that's, you know, that's part of the problem is that these boundaries are just being just cut into more and more. And there is a big difference between acting officially and acting as a private citizen. And I think I, I, I think she is clearly in violation and nothing's going to happen. And I think that's an, an unfortunate thing.
0: Yeah, just I mean, two quick points that I had kind of jotted down um, that, that I wanted to mention about this. So the so the first thing is that a lot of people are talking about this like this is something new. Um, and of course, while this office has never officially recommended that President that a president do anything about it. Um, So that's relatively unprecedented. This is not the first time that an executive employee has been in trouble for this. And this is something I think, again, a lot of people forget. They point fingers and say, this is just her. And I Keep saying, well, no. So I did the research. So this happened twice, um, at least twice, under um, President Obama's um, administration with um, HHS Secretary Kathleen Sebelius, and then the one I remember a little better was HUD Secretary um, Julian Castro talking about. I think it was he was talking about Hillary Clinton. So um, you know, it has happened. It also happened under President Bush's administration. So this is, I mean, this is something that's affected both parties, and and you know, the presidency's going back at least 10, 15 years. I mean, this this has been something that's come up and, and certainly before that. I mean, it was, it was enacted in 19... The Hatch Act was enacted in 1939, I believe. So it's, you know, it's... I'm sure that, you know, a lot of... Been around for a while, these, yeah. Yeah, a lot of these employees have run afoul of it. So the other thing that I wanted to mention is that um, this is sort of what happens if um, you are hiring people, that you're sort of cherry-picking these people straight from your campaign. I mean, she managed this campaign and... Again, I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. President Trump is somebody who ve- really puts a high premium on loyalty. And she's obviously loyal. I mean, at the at the expense of her personal life, she's loyal yeah, to this president, thinking, uh, you know, um, yeah. but it's, you know, I, I think it's worth Considering that, you know, she comes from a campaign background, she's a pollster, and this isn't somebody who, and I, this is not an excuse for for what she did. I mean, she, I definitely think there's a clear violation of the Hatch Act going on, but, you know, this is somebody who, you know, comes from this very different background. And so I think um, it, it will be something we will have to revisit whether or not this does sort of infringe upon their, you know, these employees' First Amendment rights. Um, and this is something that's come up again and again on both sides. Um, but I do think at some point we will have to revisit it. Yeah.
1: Well, and I think that, you know, the Twitter issue comes up a lot because uh, late in 2018, the the same Office of Special Counsel found, I believe it was six other White House officials in violation for using official Twitter accounts to do uh, messages supporting President Trump. And so obviously when the Hatch Act was passed in the 30s, no one was thinking about Twitter accounts. And so that, I mean, that's, you know, maybe we need to revisit that. And there needs to be some sort of uh, uh, some sort of uh, official policy about specifically use of social media just to make it absolutely crystal clear.
0: Right. And then, of course, there comes the issue of, you know, you can support a candidate in your private life. So, for yeah. example, like putting a bumper sticker on your personal car would be OK. But, you know, it. and I think that's another question, because a lot of these people have these Got, you know, these Twitter accounts or Facebook accounts, whatever, in these official capacities. So, you know, would they be able to because they do have this influence and they do have this name recognition on their personal page? Would they be able to put, you know, Trump 2020 or, you know, whoever it was, Hillary Clinton 2016, whatever. So I don't know. Lots of questions coming up for the Supreme Court, probably. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. Well I guess that pretty much does
1: it for us this week, right, Kristen? I well, think not so. really does it because of course, <laughs> I was going to say no, that's not right because no, we're, when not we're, over. Done, we're not done. <laughs> yeah, when we're done here, we're going to do the bonus show and I think this week and this is for for Patreon supporters, I think we're going to be talking about what is it? Um right President Trump, uh, those comments he made about uh, research. opposition research mm-hmm. from uh Foreign countries. Maybe that's just a fine thing to get. Well, I anyway, know we'll get into that. But also, <laughs> and you wanted to talk a little bit about Jim Acosta, right?
0: I did. Yeah, he, he has a book. Um, he published a book and he's, you know, made some pretty... Uh, wild, he said some pretty wild things about his view on journalism, which has you know, lit a lot of fires, Yeah, definitely. he does a lot. So,
1: <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, uh, the, the book, uh, The Enemy of the People. Uh, I love the yes. title. Um, yes. But uh, So if you're a supporter, that should be in your podcast app by the time you hear this. And of course, that's just one of the supporters only things we've got for you. And if you want to check out any of that stuff, it's patreon.com slash politics guys. And if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, you can do that with at mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. And hey, if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, it really helps us out. We would appreciate it. Word of mouth, always appreciated, leaving reviews, all that kind of stuff. That would be great. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show was produced by Chris Matheny and Michael Baranowski. That's me. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.